remember specifically sitting in that classroom, peering over my book and looking at everyone else and thinking, what are they doing right now? What is everybody doing? And I was a really good student. I wanted to do well, but I didn't understand what I was supposed to be doing with that book in my hands. So I just looked like I was reading. And that's what I did every day during independent reading time. I looked like I was reading. So it's really key for us as educators to meet with those kids individually and ask them questions and listen to them read. And if we're doing writer's workshop, listen to their writing, read their writing, and guide them in the next steps to help them progress. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What is the workshop approach and how might it help English learners improve their reading and writing skills? What is the appropriate balance between direct instruction and independent student work when it comes to reading and writing? How might we implement workshop-style activities in classes with diverse groups of learners? We discuss these questions and much more with Valentina Gonzalez. Valentina is an educational consultant working with educators across the nation to support English learners. She works with schools and districts to provide professional learning experiences that are tailored to meet the needs of the participants. She specializes in creating presentations that are engaging and interactive. And if you're on Twitter, you've likely seen some of her amazing work. Valentina started her journey as an educator in 1997 as a third grade language arts teacher in Katy, Texas. She has served as an educator in many capacities since then, including teaching second and fourth grade. After leaving the classroom, she worked as an ESL instructional support specialty teacher on her campus. She served and co-taught first to fifth grade classrooms. As a district leader, she has served as a facilitator for campuses and as a professional development specialist. Currently, Valentina shares her time as an independent contractor traveling to deliver professional development and working for a school district. Let's get started. Hello, Valentina. Thanks for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. It is a pleasure. Um, We were saying beforehand that not having you on this podcast uh, would not fly, so I'm glad to finally have you on. Uh, You are a huge contributor to a lot of um, teachers' professional learning communities, so we appreciate having you on. And I want to start by talking about something that you and I uh, talked about before recording here, you said that you thought you wanted to be a librarian before you started uh, teaching. And this this goes very nicely into the theme of the reading and writing workshop today. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, it's, it's true. Um, when I started teaching, um, I, I really enjoyed reading and teaching reading and books. And so as my career continued as an educator, I decided that um, I thought I wanted to be a librarian because my passion for reading and sharing that with students was so great that I I decided to um, begin my master's in study of library. And um, 
I did a full semester and then decided that that just wasn't right for me. Something didn't fit. It just didn't click. Uh And um, the path began to lead me in a different direction. And I'm really grateful that it did because now I'm here and I feel like I'm really fulfilling my, my, my life's goal. Yeah, I think you certainly are. And I think probably some of that training helped uh, with what we're going to talk about today, which are these reading and, and writing workshops. So let's, let's kick that off a little bit. Can you sort of in a nutshell, tell us briefly about, and we'll get into details later, but what this workshop model is, what it entails? Right. So the workshop model is really a structure of the way we teach reading and writing and actually other subjects as well. I mean, some people teach math and science and social studies in a workshop. So it's really the way you structure your instruction. And in reading and writing, it starts with a mini lesson. So like a five to 10 minute mini lesson that's explicit instruction um, with a whole group. And then students go off to do their reading or their writing. So the majority of the class period is going to be where students are independently reading and writing. And as students are independently reading and writing, the teacher is either pulling small groups to work with them or conferring individually one-on-one with students. So, for example, during reading workshops, the teacher would pull small groups to either do a guided reading lesson or do a strategy lesson based on the needs of the students. And then during writing workshop, the teacher would pull small groups to work with students on individual needs that are tailored to those students for developing their writing skills. And then it's summed up at the very end with a share time. So like a five minute time where the whole class comes back together and students are either sharing with partners what they did during that reading or writing time, or it's a whole class share time. Yeah. So it doesn't sound, so it sounds like things that teachers, uh, good teachers are doing pretty frequently, but it gives a little structure as to how you might go about um, setting up this kind of activity. And you mentioned it doesn't necessarily have to be just for reading and writing specifically, but for other um, subjects as well. It's really beautiful because it allows for a lot of differentiation in the classroom and the teacher can really meet the needs of all students in the classroom. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. My next kind of question there, the follow-up, was that this differentiation piece um, is crucial, being able to work with students in, in different ways and meet them where they are. And uh, before we get into that kind of mini lesson piece, which I want to talk about um, in a little bit, when you're sort of walking around or when a teacher is walking around working with different students, what, what specific challenges are you seeing students, particularly English language learners, Um, facing when they first start with this kind of model? Well, there are a couple of areas that we really have to be aware of when, when when we're thinking about English learners in a workshop classroom. We First, we have to keep in mind that though the workshop does differentiate naturally, it doesn't accommodate to meet individual student needs. Right. So, so, For example, as we're walking around and we're observing students that are reading or writing, we really have to take into consideration, are they picking books that are meeting their needs? Are they able to um, independently 
comprehend and read at that level, are they able in writing to structure their writing and elaborate and add more details? Um, what are their specific needs in order to progress in reading and writing? And so really taking anecdotal notes and stopping to confer with English learners frequently and then pull them in small groups is important so that they're not just wasting time during that independent reading and writing. Yeah, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the readings for me as a foreign language teacher, and I'll just stipulate that I was not an English teacher of English language learners, but rather a teacher of Spanish to um, to students who were learning Spanish for the first time. But for me, it was always difficult to kind of gauge what students were processing and what they were taking out of that kind of independent or group reading time. Whereas writing was a little bit easier, obviously, because I was seeing the final product. So can you tell us what a teacher should be looking for during that independent or group time when, when students are reading in order to kind of gain some kind of insight about the progress that they're, that they're making or, or perhaps the lack of progress? So it's really important to ask a lot of questions. Ask questions and provide plenty of opportunities for English learners to talk. Um, because like you said, we don't know what they're comprehending. We don't know where they're at, especially in reading, unless they're giving us some type of output during that time. Right. So for writing, like you said, we see it on the paper. But for reading, unless they're giving us some type of you know, output, something verbal, we don't know if they're understanding. So the only way to do that is to provide opportunities for some talk. And so having those conversations, asking questions, providing opportunities for them to talk with a partner about their reading, to read together with a buddy is very important for our English learners. And so that has to also happen during the mini lesson. Um, the mini lesson can be challenging for our English learners. That time uh, at the beginning of workshop when we're doing that explicit instruction we have to provide opportunities where we're checking for understanding and allowing our students to stop and turn and talk with a partner, but also scaffolding for our English learners by using some sentence frames and modeling and uh, providing um, text and providing writing samples that are attainable for our English learners. You know what, it's interesting, as you were talking about those two things, both, um, you know, checking for understanding while students are reading, giving them time to talk, and also um, making sure that while you're in the mini lesson that you're giving students opportunity to process information. Both of those things at first glance, and perhaps to a newer teacher um, who may not have been trained in this model, may seem counterintuitive because when, it's, when, a, when a student is reading and they seem engaged, um, you know, the natural tendency may be to just, all right, let's let this go. This is happening. They're reading, they're processing information. At the same time, when you're doing a mini lesson um, and you're trying to sort of uh, address what the students are going to be doing, you kind of want to get them into that activity. So one of the things that teachers, I think, or myself, I'll use myself as an example, one of the things that I struggled with um, at the very beginning of my teaching career was, okay, how do I sort of um, balance those two things? Make sure that I'm giving the directions that I need, um, but I'm also giving students an opportunity to, to process it. And also that I'm giving students a chance to read, but also giving them, uh, giving them a chance to process that information. Do you have um, 
any examples of, of strategies that work? Maybe they're not strategies. Maybe they're just like recommendations or advice to teachers who are maybe struggling with giving a mini lesson and just, just talking too much or, uh, or not giving students a chance to kind of turn and talk. How do we mitigate that? How do we make those changes? So mini lessons are challenging, especially in the beginning when we start off trying to implement the workshop model um, because most of us talk during instruction for an extended amount of time. As teachers, um, historically, um, we instruct in front of the class for more than 10 to 15 minutes. Um, I know I was guilty of that for a long time. It, it took me a while to figure out how to um, minimize my mini lesson. And so one thing I tried was timing myself. So yeah. setting a timer. So, I used to have yeah. this, sorry to interrupt, but mm -hmm. before, before there were, um, you know, cell phones, like the yeah. I'm dating myself now, there's this thing from Brookstone called the egg and it was this little egg yeah. timer. And, yeah. it had, and I timed myself and I timed my students and my students always used to, they actually yeah. named it. They named it Bob. I don't know why, but, <laughs> but they were so familiar with that timer and mm -hmm. it became like such a key tool in my yes. teaching. Yes, I had a I had one of those timers too, but it wasn't an egg. Mine was a little piggy, but anyway, it was so cute. Yeah, no, but yes, timing yourself. So setting it, you know, I started off with fifteen minutes, and I gauged myself, and then moving down to um, twelve, and then ten, and and really setting a goal for myself. The other key thing is to avoid asking whole group questions that are gonna make kids go into a tangent. So saying something like, um, who remembers yesterday when we talked about um, the main character of the story we read? Um, what was the, I, I'm just thinking of a random question. What yeah, that, that could go in a million different problem? directions. Yeah, you know, or something random that they, that the kids are not going to typically remember. And so, um, you know, people are raising their hand and we're going off in a tangent or it's taking forever to get the correct answer. Instead, just having them turn and talk at that point. So we say, turn and talk with your partner about the main character from the story yesterday. And we just give them 15 seconds. Okay, eyes back on me, you know, and that way, instead of opening it up for the entire class and we're going off in a tangent, we give them an opportunity to verbalize with their partner and we move on. Uh -huh. Or we just say, now think back yesterday to the main character named Sally. Remember when Sally had the problem in the story and she was having difficulty? Instead of um, opening it up to questions, just be explicit because that's not the point of the mini lesson. We want to get to the point of the mini lesson instead of stretching it out too, too far. The other thing is in the mini lesson, um, allowing opportunities for talk, but not overdoing it. Mm -hmm. So um, those opportunities for talk don't have to be, you know, two minutes, three minutes, 30 seconds is enough. And it can even be, rather than an opportunity to talk, just an opportunity to express themselves. Um, drawing a picture or um, 
if if the classroom is like a one-to-one devices, you can have a poll everywhere or uh, something digital um, that you are able to receive some feedback from students. That way, um, it's still interactive, but not wasting a lot of time as far as your mini lesson goes. Yeah, I love the idea of using a tool like Poll Everywhere, which um, is a great tech tool that will not only sort of minimize the time necessary, but will also allow some students who perhaps aren't um, necessarily going to be excited about using their voice to also participate as well. Um, certainly another another topic for another podcast episode, the use of technology, but that's mm-hmm. a great one. And the other, other thing that I wanted to take out of what you said, you, you mentioned sort of two time frames, 15 seconds and 30 seconds when you were talking. And for some people that may seem like that's not a lot of time. How are you going to do everything that you want to do in that time? I, you know, I, I, I think that, that that is actually a fair amount of time. One thing that I used to do uh, when I first started the school year off was um, would, would try to do these, would do these 30 second little speaking activities, very similar to what you're talking about. And I would say to my students, is 30 seconds a long time? And they'd all say, no, no, it's <laughs> super short. And then I'd say, okay, well, close your eyes. We're going to set a timer for 30 seconds and we'll see. <laughs> no and they're all like, oh my, that's incredible amount of time. That's it, it. And it really is like, there's a lot you can do there. So, um, like the power of the timer and just for, for that structure is key. And structure <laughs> is another thing that I think you're bringing up here. Like, I feel like, and I'm interested to hear your sponsor, I feel like the writing workshop and the reading workshop, the workshop model is created in, in, in or is used in many ways to make sure that students are able to kind of process things on their own and they work independently and they work in groups and you kind of show what they know. But, mm-hmm. and that's the agency piece, but without the structure, like the, the sort of um, very, um, I don't, it's not confined in any way, but very defined structure of that mini lesson. And even the structure of the independent time, it really can't happen. So it's got to be the perfect balance between structure and agency. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's a good balance of that routine. There is a routine to the um, workshop model because like, like we said, there is the mini lesson, that independent time where the teacher is working with small groups and uh, conferring and students are working independently um, and then that share time. But there, it's not so rigid. Um, so there's that flexibility and students know uh, what that routine is. And I think for English learners, that benefits them. They're, they're not guessing about what's going to happen next. They're not worried about um, the routine of the daily structure, the framework. They're more um, focused on the content. They're more focused on learning and thinking about their writing and thinking about their reading. Right. And I'm curious, as a follow-up to that, is the structure something that you sort of... Um teach to students uh, on its own? Or is it just kind of like, you know, a teacher does this a few times and it becomes very much a a, a process? Typically, at the beginning of the year, teachers do spend time um, sharing with students the structure of the workshop. Uh, You don't have to spend a great deal of time on it, but getting kids adjusted to the routine and and what this looks like and, and and how um, the workshop will function in the classroom, 
the routines are important, just like routines in, in any classroom. Um, at the beginning of the year, you want students to understand what this classroom setting is going to be like and, and, and how we're going to manage our daily events. So yes, there is a little bit of setup time. And most schools that um, embrace workshop as a whole, like where this whole school is embracing the workshop model, um, from kindergarten to fifth grade or sixth grade to eighth grade or uh, all of secondary, some, you know, secondary campuses uh, embrace workshop model. They don't have to spend a lot of time year after year going mm -hmm. over that structure. Right. Cause it's there and it's a part of the culture. It, is, is it something that do you think it, it, it benefits the school or the students, I guess is the most important thing if it is kind of a uh, school wide or district wide initiative, or is it equally beneficial if kind of an effective workshop leader who's a teacher is doing it kind of in a silo? It's definitely more beneficial if the whole campus is doing it, if, if all of the teachers are doing it and year after year students are um, seeing it and it, it, there's a ripple effect in their education. But I, I mean, definitely if, if just one year the student is um, involved in that workshop model, it, it helps students. Uh, uh, it helps students progress in reading and writing because they're able to meet the students where they are instead of that one size fits all um, that, that doesn't really fit any student in the classroom. Yeah, that's a, a great, great way to put it. That's, um, uh, it reminds me of the book, The End of Average, which is uh, mm. all about the idea that when you try to create something that works for everyone, you create mm. something that doesn't work for anyone. Right. <laughs> One more kind of structural question, and then I want to get into some specifics. As you talk about um, what this sort of looks like, uh, and I think you know most of what we've discussed so far, I mean, I guess it applies to both reading and writing, but I guess what I'm picturing in my head is a reading workshop. And here's sort of like my interpretation of how I feel like I did that without even knowing that I was doing some kind of workshop thing. And I want to give you that sort of image. And then I'd love you, for you to tell, tell us what is like sort of accurate about that image and what might be different, particularly with English language learners. Mm -hmm. So I taught um, AP Spanish uh, Literature and Culture, which was obviously a reading-heavy course. Um, and one of the things that I sort of struggled with when I first started teaching the course was there's so much reading to do that the tendency is to give students the reading for homework. Well, what happens when a very busy high school senior has a very difficult uh, poem or short story in, in, in Spanish to read and they have it at home, they find the translation because they're busy and that's mm -hmm. they're ultra motivated. Um, that's what they're going to do. So I was trying to find a way to get students to read more authentically. So I said, you know, I'm going to flip this around. I'm going to give all the background and all the information, use some technology, mm -hmm. flip, do some videos, have them be able to access them at home and have them read in class. So what I did was with my handy timer, I gave students what I thought was a bit of a mini lesson about what they were looking for. And they also had that on the flipped resources as well. And then I would say, because they were seniors and they were pretty independent, I would say, either by yourself or with another student, go find a place. We had a very sort of open campus in the school where you can work and you're going to be gone for 10 minutes. And during those 10 minutes, you're going to read this, this text that I had. You can read at different levels. Some of you are faster than others. I want you to annotate everything. I want you to kind of, and then we're going to come back and we're going to reflect and we're going to reflect for five minutes. And during that time, 
you know, it'll be a structured piece where I'll kind of ask if there's any questions and then I'll sort of walk around and speak with people um, individually. So that was kind of my loose version of what this looked like. So it was very, uh, students were kind of everywhere for a while, you know, reading their, on their own or with others that had a lot of choice and then would come back and sort of reflect on that information, have an opportunity to answer questions. That's my version. What's sort of not right with that in, in terms of the, it's probably a lot of things. And, and what, how does it look similar? Well, I think that's a, it's a variation of the reader's workshop. Um, the mini lesson, I feel like that was a good mini lesson because you gave it, you gave it to everyone and it was something that everyone needed. And then when you sent them off to read, you gave them some choice, even though they were all reading the same thing. And in, in Reader's Workshop, typically, um, there is choice in what they read. So everyone's reading at their own reading level. Um, there's choice in the books that they choose, the literature that they choose. And, and then um, while students are reading, you're either pulling groups or you're working with individual students. And I should um, mention, in my defense, just uh -huh. I have to say this, I wasn't like reading the newspaper while they right. were off. I was walking around. I knew where they were <laughs> and I would be checking in on them. I, I realized yeah. that probably to say that they're just scattered throughout the school is probably not the best image to convey. No, but I mean, that um, flexibility and where they got to choose also is nice because um, it allows for comfort in their reading. So I feel like a lot of reading workshop classrooms do that. Students are reading under the desks or under their chairs. It's very comfortable um, and, and kids like that. They feel like they can you know, enjoy their reading better that way. And then your five minute reflection is like that share time. So I feel like it was a great variation of a, a reading workshop style. And I love that you did that in, um, in foreign language classroom, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Spanish foreign language classroom. So that's right. really, really great, great example of a reading workshop. Yeah. Awesome, Steve. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know I was doing it. Yeah, I know. And a lot of us are doing uh, a reading and writing variation of a workshop or have been for, you know, decades and not realizing it. And, and if you are doing um, some components of it, or you think you might be, or you want to try it, my advice is just get in there, dig in, try it. Don't be afraid because there's really no right or wrong in this. Um, you know, learn a little bit more uh, about a piece of this puzzle that you're curious about and just give it a try. Practice and don't give up. Even if, if you think it didn't go well the first time, there's always that implementation dip. Uh, Things don't work out the first time, but the more you try it, the better it's going to get, the easier the kids are going to get used to it. They're going to enjoy it. And I just feel like the reading and writing workshop is beneficial for all students, but the key always is to accommodate, not just for English learners, but for all of our students. And the best way to do that is to know the kids, know their needs, and, and give them what they need. Yeah, for sure. And you get to know those kids so well when, like you say, you, funny you mentioned there's kids reading under the desks. There's kids, like yeah. I would have kids, you know, there's a bean bag outside of my room. And like you just get to know those kids by going to visit them in those places, those kind of yeah. sacred reading places that they had. Um, yeah. you, just, you couldn't get to know them in other ways. And I feel like with groups, 
um, like English learners and like you said, any, any other um, group, you're going to get to know the kids well. And this, this is just reflects on something I feel like I say in every episode that we do, which is good instruction for ELs is good instruction for all students. And this mm-hmm. is a classic example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in third grade, Steve and um, the, my teacher was doing, now when I look back, I can tell that it was a variation of a reading workshop. And he was giving us independent reading time. But I wasn't being supported enough, and so I really didn't know what to do during that independent reading time. Mm-hmm. So I, I remember specifically sitting in that classroom, peering over my book and looking at everyone else and thinking, what are they doing right now? What is everyone doing? And I was a really good student. I wanted to do well, but I didn't understand what I was supposed to be doing with that book in my hands. So I just looked like I was reading. And that's what I did every day during independent reading time. I looked like I was reading. So it's really key for us as educators to meet with those kids individually and ask them questions and listen to them read. And if we're doing writer's workshop, listen to their writing, read their writing, and guide them in the next steps to help them progress. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. And by the way, I think anytime somebody says, I remember in third grade, it's either going to be a really positive experience or really yeah. negative experience. But in this case, like, you know, you, you bring up a good point that I think probably um, a lot of people have made that mistake if they've taught. I certainly have, where you're giving this sort of independent work. But I think, you know, it doesn't take much to sort of realize as a teacher that, oh, have I given enough structure to make this effective? And like, I say, I I feel like the term structured agency is one that I use all the time, but it's like crucial to have the right balance or else you're just, you're either doing too much talking yourself or you're giving way too much freedom. Um, Mm -hmm. That's the case, I think, with every education buzzword that's out there, blended learning, project-based learning, competency-based learning. I mean, it's all a matter Mm -hmm. of having the right balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking, speaking of balance and independent reading and like having students kind of, there are some students, I think, um, you know, I know that even if you are, you do have the right recipe of agency and structure and you are giving students the freedom to kind of read where they want, they still, you know, they're maybe they're, they're, they're blooming readers or they're not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've, you've um, done some research and some work on interactive read alouds. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about, uh, about that and how it might sort of differ from the traditional teacher reads to student model and, you know, how you think it might be effective to reach some of those students, particularly those, um, those ELs that we're focusing on. Oh, I'm, I'm in love with read alouds, especially interactive read alouds. So typically when we think about like the old school type of traditional read aloud, um, I don't know. I think of my teacher, way back when, when we sit in front of him or her and they would read to us as a class and we would have, we would be passive, passive listeners to this story. In an interactive read aloud, we are included in the reading of the story. And not only that, but the teacher includes us in his or her thoughts while they read. So There's a lot of pre-planning that goes into an interactive read aloud. Um, When the teacher chooses the interactive read aloud, um, the teacher thinks about like skills and concepts that the students are needing, that the whole group would benefit from. And then 
pre-reading that story is important because you're going to want to think about places that you're going to stop and think aloud for the students and stop and have them turn and talk. Really pre-plan intentional moments for interaction, not only for you to stop and think aloud what processes you're having as a reader, but also stop and have students either turn and talk with a partner. And for English learners, it's nice to have them participate using some sentence stems and modeling, um, but also moments where they might draw or do some something interactive if you use technology, that's also an option there. Um, so the interactive read aloud differs because students are not passive listeners. Mm -hmm. um, interactive read aloud is also powerful for our English learners because they get to hear a model of language structures, English language structures, and it's this building of community that we allow our students on a daily basis. We can include books that are culturally responsive. Um, there's so many benefits to our interactive read aloud. Yeah, it's, I definitely, I can, I can hear them. One thing that actually I'd love for you to, and I, again, like I have this sort of idea of what you mean here, but I'm not going to say what it is. I'm curious of, of what you think about it. When you said, um, include the students in his or her thoughts. The teacher is like pre-reading something and is going to include the students in this text. Could you give an example of what that looks like in an effective interactive read aloud? So for example, um, when we pre-plan our read aloud, we're going to think about, um, think about our students' needs and think about um, how we might incorporate their ideas and thoughts into, um, into our reading of the text. So we might stop and have them discuss what the character feels, feels like, have them stop and act out what the character might look like at that moment. Um, they might talk about a time when they felt like the character. Um, we're going to have them participate in the actual experience of of the text. And the read aloud doesn't have to be a narrative. I'm kind of making it seem like it always has to be a narrative, but read alouds also can be nonfiction. They can be poetry. They can be excerpts mm -hmm. from a chapter. Um, it can be anything. It doesn't have to be a picture book or a chapter book. Um, it can be a short text. As long as students are hearing us as readers, uh, this is an important piece of the puzzle for all students, especially for our English learners, because if they're only reading text that they can decode, then they're not having the experience of, of thinking at that higher cognitive level. Right. And so then we begin to create gaps. And that is something that we obviously want to avoid. And we know our students uh, especially our English learners can think at higher levels than they can decode. Right. And that, so there's a couple things there. What you just said, I think is crucially important. Um, being able to kind of give a uh, scaffolded um, opportunity for students to, to achieve that higher level 
without being totally overwhelmed. So like productive struggle, I think is the term that, that is used frequently in cognitive science. You know, the, the struggle, it's enough to learn, but not enough to kind of to, to turn off. And when you're supporting that, um, that's key. And then the other thing, like as you talk about, include students in there, you know, it occurs to me what we were talking about earlier, how, how crucially important it is to know your students, not only academically, um, but also uh, as people and culturally, you mentioned cultural responsiveness, um, to be able to sort of incorporate them into that, into those um, interactive read-alouds. So again, like going back to just knowing who your students are um, and having opportunities to get to know your students through strategies like the workshop model um, are just going to, to benefit you in the long run as well. Definitely. Um, knowing their, knowing where they come from, allowing them the opportunity to express themselves um, and share with others and feeling safe enough to, to share who they are and share their stories. And interactive read-alouds are a perfect venue for that because we're sharing a story and now we can each share our own stories and share little mini stories about who we are and, and realize that it's okay that we're all different and that builds so much empathy and community. And in today's society, we really need that. Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad you're mentioning society in general because we're not just preparing these students to be successful on a test or to graduate high school or be preparing these or that this is the future. Stakes are um, are high. So, yeah. one more question: on The interactive read aloud. Because as I, you know, I am definitely guilty of the image that is conjured in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. It is a bunch of elementary school students, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in this interactive reading aloud. And um, as a high school teacher, I did do some read alouds because I was teaching Spanish as a foreign language. But I'm curious um, if this is something you feel like teachers of middle and high school students is students could or should be doing? And if so, how it might be, might be different than kind of what we stereotypically think of as an elementary school activity? Well, I'm wondering if there are any adults out there that like audiobooks. You don't have to answer. I think there's a few. (laughs) I hope so because we're listening to a podcast right now. Yeah, no kidding, right? So, I mean, that in itself tells us that we're never too old, right? We're never too old to listen to text read aloud. Um, And so, yes, definitely read alouds, interactive read alouds are for students of all ages. And we're all students. I'm a student. You're a student. We're all students. So our secondary kids, our middle school, our junior high, our high school kids are not too old for read-alouds and especially interactive read-alouds because learning is social. Learning is social and we know that. We know these things are good for all of us. And so it might look different, uh, but that's, you know, that's in, a, in nature, school is going to be different in junior high, um, in secondary than it is in elementary. So the read aloud in secondary school might um, be heavier in complexity. That's all uh, I think that may differ. We might use poetry, which we would use in elementary too, but we might use excerpts. The academic vocabulary might be greater. Um, we may use brochures or chapters from um, our literature. But it, it's the same concept. 
And it still needs to have interaction where our students are talking with one another. They're hearing from their peers. They're grappling with ideas. We're using visuals to support their understanding. Um, but it's so important even for our secondary students, especially for our English learners at that secondary level, because they, the urgency for them is greater. Mm-hmm. We, they're learning that content and language and, and they have to, they have a shorter time um, to meet that um, graduation criteria than our elementary students do. Yeah. And I think there's just such like a, I love it that you said, do you think there's any adults that listen to audiobooks? Like one thing that I think about audiobooks and maybe even podcasts <laughs> yeah, um, or, or just reading aloud, like that's like a, a, a shared through 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 every culture really like a shared connection to our past like storytelling is just something that we have always done and i feel like with all of the sort of digital noise that we are surrounded by every day for better or for worse for many students um i'm noticing more and more this kind of thing is becoming like a welcome um break from from that kind of madness and the, the example that i would give is we started to do um, like a poetry slam thing at my oh. high school. Ah, oh, fun. Blew my mind how ah. many students not only got up and like recited their own poetry or other poetry, but how many students like chose the poetry that we were reading in my classes to read because like they're inspired by it. They were, they were, they were not fully proficient in Spanish at all, but like this was an opportunity for them to tell a story and show their skills, yeah. get a reaction from others. Um, and we, we tend to think, I feel like that, you know, students don't appreciate those things and they really do. Um, if we just give it a try. Yes. Oh my gosh. Poetry is amazing. It's an amazing avenue for our students and that that's beautiful. I love that story, Steve. Yeah, it was great. Really, really, um, super inspiring. Yeah. So I, I guess like before we get into um, sort of wrapping this up, one of the, one of the last questions that, that we haven't talked too much about was um, measuring progress. So, you know, from maybe from a higher level, from an administrator level, people want to see if these things are working. So I'm curious, like, how do you measure progress on these workshops specifically, not only through the interaction that you get with students, which I think is super powerful, perhaps even more powerful, but through formative and summative assessments, what are some of the ways that teachers can assess students at such a wide variety of levels, um, particularly, particularly those uh, English learners? It's so important to know where they are from the beginning and have goals, um, setting those goals with students so they know where they're headed. Uh, that is key to the success of readers and writers workshop. And then formatively assessing them on the way, taking anecdotal notes, measuring that success and celebrating it along the way. I think it's important for English learners that we use rubrics such as those can-do descriptors if you're in a WIDA state. Mm -hmm. Or um, in Texas, we have PLDs. These are proficiency level descriptors. They describe the language levels for listening, speaking, reading, and writing for our students. And we can combine those proficiency level descriptors and can-do descriptors 
with our state standards for reading and writing. And that way we create a rubric to assess students in reading and writing. Right. And rubrics, I think, are the best way to assess in a readers and writers workshop. So just truly knowing where students are from the beginning, setting goals with them. This is attainable goals with our students and measuring that success along the way and celebrating each little bitty success along that path. Yeah. Measure and celebrate. I feel like oftentimes we measure, but don't yeah. celebrate. So that's yeah. a really great point. And I, I, I agree with you about the rubrics. And I had that, like when I have mentioned those, I didn't just teach AP courses, but I've mentioned those a few times. And the great thing about those courses is, is like with the can do descriptors um, or any other standards that are in other States. You know, these things already existed. There were rubrics that we could mm -hmm. use. They were constantly being sort of updated and reviewed. So it's not like you have to build something from scratch. You can look mm -hmm. at the, here's your baseline. Here's where you are now. Here's where we want to, where we want to get you, you know, and, mm -hmm. and this little example of this that you did in writer's workshop today really showed that you're progressing towards this level. I think, you know, sharing with students as well and having them reflect a little mm -hmm. bit as to where they are um, is, is also key, giving them some ownership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It has to be a team effort. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Okay. Well, great. I think we, we, we covered a lot there on reading and writing workshop. There's obviously a lot more out there and I'll mention those resources um, in a little bit, but before we wrap up, I have two <coughs> questions to ask you that we ask everyone. The first one is um, if there is a book or other resource that has influenced you in your uh, personal or professional life that you'd like to recommend to our ever growing highest aspirations podcast library of resources. Absolutely, Steve. A game-changing book for me years ago was The Book Whisperer by Donalyn Miller. When I read that book, it changed my teaching career. Love The Book Whisperer. And then anything by Kylene Beers, but specifically, When Kids Can't Read, What Teachers Can Do. Those are, those are two. Great. And those two are new and I have not heard of them. I've not read them myself. So selfishly, I'm happy that you brought those up. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I feel like sometimes this is more my own library than everybody else. But hopefully other people are benefiting as well. But I get so much from this. Um, and you have, you, I should say, um, you know, do an amazing amount of, uh, of work for um, people really everywhere. You're very active on Twitter um, you have a blog, you have lots of great information that I have used and I know many others use as well. But for those of you who, or for those listeners who may not be aware of where to find your work, can you tell us um, where they can find it and access some of the information that you have, not only on this, but on like a wide variety of other uh, topics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I write for sidelitseducation.com blog. So you can find my work there. I also write a, a monthly blog for middleweb.com. I'm the, e the Unstoppable ELL teacher. And I have my own blog, which is elementaryenglishlearners.weebly.com. And really, it says elementary, but I started that years ago. And truly, it's 
K to 12. And I've had some people tell me they use it for adult learners too. So, I mean, I offer just everything on there. Yeah, I will. I will definitely um, say that that is true. There's a lot there because I look at that quite frequently. And then uh, I mentioned as well, you're active on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? At Valentina ESL. Perfect. And if you're not on Twitter and you're listening to this podcast, um, you're missing out on a lot of great resources. I don't like to pressure anyone, but people like Valentina <laughs> and many others are posting really wonderful things about uh, topics like this all the time. Yeah. Twitter changed my life as a professional as well. I mean, I've learned so much from people around the world. It's amazing. And I met Steve on Twitter too. <laughs> that's actually true. Yeah. That's, that's, yes. that's the case with a lot of guests on Highest Aspirations, both past, present, and future. So I'm also thankful for it as well. Um, well, Valentina, I just want to thank you so much, not only for coming on the podcast, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, we, I think, absolutely needed to have you on, um, considering all the guests that we've had. So I appreciate that. And also want to thank you for everything that you do um, for the for the EL community in general. Your work is um, prolific. Uh, it is um, actionable. Um, and it is much appreciated by me and many others. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Steve. I, it's such an honor to be on the show with you, and I appreciate everything that you all do as well. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.